you for coming to the Chicago Justice Show, and thank you for being here. My name is Tracy Siskai. I'm your host and also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. I'm very happy to welcome McDumkey with us. We're happy to have him. Reporter and columnist for ProPublica. We're going to be discussing his latest piece uh, titled The Murder Chicago Didn't Want to Solve. Going back, I am sad to say, um, 60-some years there. 60 years or almost 60 years from the almost 60 uh, years yeah almost 60 years okay so real quick coming up on the show next week ladies and gentlemen on this monday 315 we're talking about the officer support system designed by the chicago crime lab we're supposed to have bob boyk executive director of the cpd's office of constitutional policing and reform and dylan fitzpatrick and Maggie Goodrich from the University of Chicago Crime Lab. On Monday the 22nd, we have 49, 49th Ward Alderman, and Alderman to Mick Dumpke, I believe, Alderman Maria Haddon, um, on talking about the Anjanette Young ordinance that she took part in writing. And on Wednesday the 24th, we have 20th Ward Alderman Jeanette Taylor, uh, talking about getting pressured to use menu money to buy cameras and license plate readers for the Chicago Police Department. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring this show, which is three times a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter, you can go to the link um, and sponsor it. And if you're interested in corporate sponsorship, by all means, let us know at info at chicagojustice.org, and we will get you that information. Mick Dunkey, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, great to be back with you, Tracy. Okay, so before we get into the big details, tell our audience what drew you to a story from 60 years ago. Well, um, first of all, it's a really interesting story in my view. Um, not, I'm not saying my telling of it is, is so great. I'm just saying that the story itself is just absolutely fascinating to have an elected official, in this case, a member of the Chicago City Council, found executed in his ward office um, gangster style uh, his wrists and handcuffs found face down on the floor bullets to the back of the head and the neck and a burnt out cigarette between two of his fingers uh, which suggested that whoever killed him gave him one last smoke before they did the job beyond that though tracy i think uh once i heard about this case uh, i just um it really struck me that it had the potential to uh, explain a lot about the way things work even now. Even though this case is, as you said, decades old, it really fundamentally is about um, political corruption and uh, lack of accountability for the police department. And those two things being very closely intertwined, especially at that time. And so uh, once I sort of dove into some of the details of the case and, and the context in which the, the murder happened, I was just really struck of how there was, uh, seemed like there's a straight line to the present. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So set the stage for us. This is a story about what occurred in the early 1960s. Um, what's the city like at that time? Well, first of all, of course, um, it is ruled over by Richard J. Daly, um, Boss Daly, as he became known, of course, and he uh, reigned over the, not only as mayor of Chicago, but he was the head, uh, the chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party, and that may have been just as important um, for purposes of his power. Um, 
out in the 50 wards in the city of Chicago, you of course had each one of them had an alderman they sent to the city council, but the more important job out in the wards was the Democratic committeemen, uh, the representatives who sat on the Democratic Party committee because they were the ones who handled all the patronage. So they really had the power. And they usually, sometimes they were the same person as the alderman, but when they weren't, it was very clear that the alderman reported to the committeemen and the committeemen reported to uh, you know, the chairman of the party who was Richard J. Daly. Um, out in the 24th Ward, which is in the North Lawndale area, for those who know Chicago and its neighborhoods, um, the ward had been a Democratic stronghold for decades, one of the top vote-producing wards uh, in the whole country. At one point in time, actually, FDR had said that it was one of the greatest Democratic uh, voting districts anywhere in the United States. Um, and so you had, uh, at that time, North Lawndale was a community in transition. Uh, it had been um, predominantly immigrant and Jewish going back several decades. But uh, those longtime residents were starting to leave for what they saw as greener pastures up on the north side and the suburbs, places where they could get more space, because the neighborhood was really uh, tightly packed. It was a very dense neighborhood. At the same time, you had um, black families moving in because they had so few opportunities on the south side where there were very rigid uh, lines that they could not cross for housing at mm -hmm. that time. Um, or people coming up directly from the southern United States looking for better opportunities up north. So you had this community in transition. At the same time, you had this very clear hierarchy of the political machine. And that's really relevant because the subject of the story, uh, the person who was murdered, Ben Lewis, was the first black leader of this ward. And um, he was just reelected to the city council in February of, of 1963. And the next night, someone went in and murdered him in the way that we described earlier. Okay, um, just a really quick, so for Chicagoans, the 24th Ward you're talking about in the 1960s, how similar, do we know how similar it is to the 24th Ward that covers good chunks of Lawndale right now? It's pretty similar. I, I couldn't sit here and tell you exactly which intersections, intersections have shifted, but then as now it's rooted in uh in the north lawndale area so the main drag in both instances then and now was would be west <clears throat> roosevelt road so for instance uh ben lewis's ward office the 24th ward headquarters was right at the corner of roosevelt road and central park um uh central park avenue i think so and someone who's a real chicago streets person may correct me on that but Roosevelt and Central Park, um, right in the heart of the Lawndale community. Okay, as you talked about, this is a story about Ben Lewis, who became the first black West Side alderman. Um, can tell our audience a little bit more about Ben Lewis previous to becoming this, this um, first black alderman on the West Side? Sure, and he was not only the first black alderman, he was the first black elected official on the West Side at that time. Um, as I mentioned earlier, most of uh, African-Americans in Chicago lived on the south side and in an area that was very strictly designed. It was called, uh, you know, the Black Belt in some ways. It was called mm -hmm. Bronzeville. Um, and so this was when people were starting to finally uh, see other 
places where they could live because it was so uh, congested down in that part of the city. Um, so Ben Lewis actually, uh, in many ways, well, first of all, you know, there's not that much we know about his life other than what was written about him in the newspapers at the time. And I, when I was doing research for the story, Tracy, I uh, gobbled up everything I could find in old news clips, but I also looked at them with uh, a healthy dose of skepticism, as we like to say in the industry, because um, then just, you know, just like now, back then, of course, a politician, the information that he shared with reporters was often selective to try to make him look favorable in one light or another. And so, uh, but that said, Ben Lewis's storyline kind of followed uh, the pattern of a lot of African Americans at that time. So he was born in Georgia in the South, moved up North with his mom and uh, siblings. Um, they, they had a brief stop, it appears, in New Jersey before they ended up in Chicago on the South Side. In 1919, there was a horrific incident where a, um, a, a young young black teenager was swimming and uh, essentially eventually drowned. Um, there are different accounts of that. We don't have to get into all the details, but bottom line is uh, stones were thrown at him. This, this uh, swimmer drowned and the whole South side basically blew up into a race riot that happened for the better part of a week. That's relevant because afterward, uh, Ben Lewis's mother apparently packed up and moved her family uh, to the near west side of Chicago, uh, the Maxwell Street area for those uh, Chicagoans who are following here. And at the time, that was an immigrant area. And um, Ben Lewis said he was one, that they were one of the first black families in the area. So he even said at one point in time, I learned to run before I could walk because I was the first black kid on my block. Um, but he also uh, would talk for the rest of his life, for the rest of his career about how so many of the people he grew up with and so many of his friends were uh, were white. And he really was uh, you know, proud of the fact that he got along with a lot of different kind of people, had a lot of different kind of allies. So at some point in time, um, he, uh, he did a bunch of uh, different kinds of work. He served in the army during World War II. He worked as uh, a couple of, uh, he worked as a CTA bus driver, um, at some point in time, he ended up with a patronage job, and he ended up getting into politics. And uh, he, according to one story, he ran into an old schoolmate whose family had moved a little bit west to Lawndale. And this uh, former classmate of his essentially recruited him to go out there because they needed people who were good at politics, who could work the precincts, get voters to the polls, and uh, quite frankly, who were black because the neighborhood was transitioning and the ward organization needed people who could relate to their uh, new constituency. Um, now, another version of the story, Tracy, is that uh, the area that Ben Lewis came from on the near west side was notorious for being controlled politically by uh, politicians and uh, others who were connected to the mob. Um, and that uh, Ben Lewis himself had a lot of friends who ended up becoming mobsters, and he maintained those ties his whole life. And in fact, according to one story, uh, basically the outfit uh, sponsored his political career. So whatever way you look at it, Ben Lewis was chosen both for his political skills 
and for uh, the fact that he was thought to be in some ways uh, a front. Um, you know, while you had these powerful white guys running things in the background, Ben Lewis uh, was someone that they could count on to sort of give them appearance of diversifying their, their leadership. All right, so Lewis is basically executed, assassinated on February 28th, 1963. And what starts coming out in the papers is, at least according to your reporting and according to some FBI files you got, as a FOIA person, I always love to see that stuff happening, um, there comes out all this information in the newspapers that discredit him. And we're going to talk about why, but I want to read our, um, our viewers a little quote that was pulled from your article, which I find interesting. I, I believe this comes from an FBI report, whether it's a report or a memo. I'm sure Mick is about to correct me, but the stories concerning Lewis's personal life are being manufactured to dirty him up in order to make it appear the city didn't lose too great of an alderman. So what right. were your thoughts yeah. when you read that? I mean, what context did it give around the other things that were in the media about him? Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, during this, as this investigation got underway, um, the police department was uh, continually leaking information to reporters. Now, of course, that happens now, but I don't think it's the same thing at all the way it worked back then. I mean, sometimes um, when I was putting together a timeline, Tracy, you could see that information appeared in like the morning daily newspapers. Um, at the same time, sometimes even before, it showed up in police reports. So they would interview someone who was an acquaintance of Lewis's, maybe a suspect on some level, and reporters would know about it almost immediately. And back then, um, they withheld very little information. So some of these people who were brought in for questioning or asked to take lie detector tests, their names their uh, places where they worked, their home addresses were all in the paper. Um, Damn. So that's part of the, the background, convert, the background, the context for this. Um, so it became very clear to me from looking at both the press accounts and combing through hundreds of pages of police reports that, uh, especially in the early days, the police were fixated on Ben Lewis's personal life. Now, in fairness to the detectives, um, it appears they had a lot of material because Ben Lewis um, was a complicated guy. It, it appeared he had a number of girlfriends. He was uh, he was married, had one daughter, an adult daughter, but he apparently had a lot of girlfriends. His business dealings appeared to be a real mess. He had an insurance business that was uh, failing or on the verge of failure. Uh, while he presented well, he was, uh, I talked to a bunch of, you know, longtime uh, residents of the West Side and, you know, like one guy who remembers seeing him when he was a little kid, seeing Ben Lewis drive around the neighborhood and stuff. They were always impressed by the fact he drove this nice sports car and that he was dressed to the nines, just always wearing a nice suit. So even though he presented like this, like this cool character, um, the guy was, uh, it seems like in a lot of ways, kind of a mess. And after he died, his wife actually had to go to court to get a release of funds from his estate so that they could pay for funeral expenses. So um, whatever heirs he put on, he clearly was, uh, his finances were in, in disarray. Um, so the police focused on all of this. 
the problem with that, Tracy, is that there were um, what I sort of refer to casually as kind of like there was this triumvirate of power that, that had real control over the 24th Ward. And while the police were looking into all of Ben Lewis's foibles, looking for maybe like a jealous husband or a scorned business partner or something, um, they did very little to look into uh, the forces and, and individuals who actually control the war. And that would, of course, be the political machine. We talked about how Ben Lewis in some ways was a front. Well, there are other people in the war organization and in the Democratic Party who, of course, had um, far more power and control over the war than Ben Lewis did. Secondly, we mentioned the outfit. Um, this was a, uh, an area that had active gambling operations and was well known to have been uh, basically the, you know, the, the playland of uh, gangsters going back many years. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a well-known gambling spot just a couple doors down from the ward office. And the third force would be the police department itself, uh, who at that time, the, uh, the district commanders and most of the patrol officers would have been clout hires. So uh, the ward committeemen, uh, the ward bosses, um, and aldermen to some degree would have picked a lot of the police officers who served in their communities, um, which you know is is a little bit, not more than a little bit, is very problematic because um, you know they're they're assigned there based on who they know and what they're willing to do, who they're willing to work with, as opposed to uh, you know the job they're supposed to do. And uh, all of these, all of these groups worked in concert, Tracy. So you had, um, you actually had police officers who were known to be bagmen. Uh, they went and picked up the payoffs from the gangsters that they would then deliver to the police lieutenant and the other patrolmen, and they would uh, sometimes deliver money to the politicians as well who were being paid off. Um, so all this was going on at the time of uh, the murder. And okay, so uh, the investigation doesn't look like it, it looks like from the records that there's no evidence that the police actually pursued any of these other, you know, parties who who most likely would have known what was going on and probably were involved in it themselves. OK, so you talked about the political power and we mentioned the position committeemen when um, Lewis gets elected is Arthur Elrod, if I'm pronouncing that right. What role does Mr. Elrod play in the saga, um, like what's in the police reports and officially and unofficially, what is his role in all of this? Well, Art Elrod or Artie Elrod, as he was known to a lot of people then, was a uh, powerful ward boss. He was a county commissioner and he ran the 24th ward for a number of years. He actually, for uh, real political junkies, he... Um, his mentor actually was a guy by the name of Jake Arvey, who was a, a force in national politics, a good friend of FDR's and Harry Truman's, who um, at one point in time had been um, a national, a player in national democratic politics. Um, and so Elrod was sort of a disciple of uh, Jake Arvey's. And then Ben Lewis, of course, became uh, the guy that Elrod picked to be the first uh, black alderman. So you know, again, the the ward committeemen, the ward bosses are the guys who decided this kind of stuff. And when uh, the ward had become uh, majority, I think it was by that point in time, at least 80% African-American, 
uh, Elrod, who didn't even live in the neighborhood, he lived on the north side by that time, but was still running the ward um, as a sort of absentee leader. Um, he decided, oh, it's time, you know, I guess it's time for the ward to have uh, some black representation. So he picked Lewis to be his guy. Now, flash forward, that, that was in 1957 when Lewis uh, first became alderman. So we go forward six years later at the time of Lewis's murder. Elrod had died by that point in time. And officially, at least, Ben Lewis was the ward committeeman as well. So he was the guy who was supposed to be running the ward. But uh, there's all kinds of evidence that he was fighting for power and that there were other people. There was another protege of um, Elrod's named uh, Izzy Horwitz, who actually had most of the power to run in the ward. And Izzy, at that point in time, just like Elrod before him, had had moved out of the ward, but was still very active in, in running it. So these, again, Tracy, are the power dynamics. And um, an important detail in this murder is that uh, soon before uh, Lewis's re-election to the city council and then subsequently his murder, he had started leaking to the press that he wanted to run for Congress. And there were a couple of things uh, wrong with Ben Lewis doing this, um, uh, wrong in the, in the way, in, according to the way things worked back then. First of all, you didn't decide that you were going to run for Congress on your own. If you're a guy like Ben Lewis, you were supposed to get the blessing of Mayor Daley and by extension, the rest of the Democratic Party um, apparatus. And there's no evidence that he did that. He just started leaking it to the press. Chicago Defender would write about it. And of course, you know, this was Lewis's way of basically trying to tell his constituents that, uh, you know, you voted for me overwhelmingly for the city council. Well, I'm on my way up. You know, hitch a ride with this train. And, um, but that was a real no-no. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the murder actually happened right after the election. Okay, so let's talk real quick. You talked a little bit about the fact that um, his wife, um, there was there, there were issues around money and how he supported himself and um, the fact that he dressed very uh, flashy or successfully. I don't know if that's the right concept I'm trying to put there, but, and he had a very fancy car. Were there people in your research that thought there were other ways he was supplementing his income? Or were there, were there people patronage? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. There are all sorts of rumors about, you know, um, you know, was he tied up in gambling? Was he on the take somehow? Um, if he were involved in gambling, if he were being paid off, um, he would be one of many aldermen who were at that time. Um, in terms of legal activities, I think that the way a lot of aldermen uh, and, and ward bosses at that time made money was through um, sort of a legalized corruption. Uh, so, for instance, tavern owners all had to get they all had to have insurance. They all had the licensing from the city. So it was very common for ward bosses to run insurance agencies because, excuse me, they knew that everybody running a tavern uh, and some other kinds of businesses in the ward were essentially going to go to them. Look, if you're the person who could hold up their license, if you're the person who could send in building inspectors to shut the whole business down, 
who do you think that <laughs> you know this business owner is going to turn to for insurance? They know that they need to go through you. So that was a really lucrative side business. Um, for instance, RDL Rod had um, a really successful insurance firm. So when Ben Lewis got in there, you know, I'm, he obviously expected that now it was going to be his turn to, uh, you know, enjoy some of the spoils of being in power. But the problem was that his predecessors, um, their uh, business associates, weren't willing to let him do that. So Ben Lewis actually was blocked by the Elrod Insurance Company from profiting off of uh, most of the insurance business in the in the community. So he was cut off from sort of the legalized corruption that a lot of other ward businesses were able to. And they got into a whole legal dispute. There's court records on this and everything like that. But essentially, there was an agreement that Lewis was forced to enter into where he would not approach any of the Elrod insurance uh, firm's customers and try to poach them. And the problem with that is, you know, because Elrod and, and his successors had already locked up so much of the business that that basically shut Lewis out altogether. So that's just an example of the kind of uh, ways that elected officials could profit, you know, from their positions back at that time. All right. Very, it's so really interesting. We're going to dig into a little more on this and we'll be back in one minute. P Nation. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. All right, and if you're interested in getting involved, follow that link or email us at infochicagojustice.org. Right now, we have about 150 people volunteering and interning with CJP as part of the nation. All right, we're back with McDumkey uh, and his fascinating story about a murder that Chicago did not want to solve. So digging into some of the FBI memos, um, it's really fascinating what you found and how different a picture their memos and reports paint than what the media <laughs> painted about what was going on. So here's another piece of it I want to read. The FBI agent suggested the police avoided looking closely at powerful people who actually dominated the 24th Ward, the political machine, the outfit, the police themselves. Um, pretty amazing to put that, to read that in the FBI memo. Um, it came out in your reporting that the police basically only looked at black uh, ward workers, really no white people involved in it. It was, I guess, um, white people don't kill people. Um, um, and so now we got to talk a little bit about the rackets or organized crime. I guess rackets back then was really the name for it. Um, and there's two individuals who I just love their names, but I want to get uh, some context about them. And um, I'm going to use their yeah, nicknames. Tracy, shake me, sorry, yeah, before, before we get into those guys, if I can jump in real quick, I just want to yeah. point out a couple things what you said already. First of all, um, my summary of the memos, the, the FBI never came out and said uh, the investigation missed the opportunity to talk to corrupt politicians, 
corrupt cops or outfit guys. They didn't put it in those terms. And what they did do is um, essentially the FBI files I was able to find uh, are summaries of conversations they had with all kinds of their informants. And the sum, the summation of those memos, and there's there's lots of them, uh, is basically like, yeah, uh, it's clear that the local authorities are trying to dirty up, you know, the name of Ben Lewis to say that essentially he brought it on himself, when in fact um, there is a lot of evidence that this was some kind of political murder, that. Um, you know, there were rumors out on the street that uh, the outfit guys, uh, he, they, the way they put it in the FBI memo was the organized crime element was unhappy with Ben Lewis. Um, there was a tip that came in that said, you know, you should look closely at the way Ben Lewis was shut out of the insurance business by the Elrod Insurance uh, Company. Um, so my analysis of looking at all of those uh, memos and files is like, they had all these informants pointing out the flaws in the police investigation. But the FBI, um, just to be fair to everybody and, and to call out those who need to be called out, uh, the FBI wasn't exactly eager to jump into this realm and to start mm-hmm. looking at the case either. Uh, at that time, they, uh, they clearly saw uh, homicides as a local matter. Their concern when they were investigating organized crime or anything associated with organized crime was when it crossed state lines. That's when they saw it as, as their mission. And of course, we know subsequently that um, you know by the early '60s, certainly by the mid '60s, the FBI in a lot of cases was more interested in investigating civil rights activists than it was looking Correct. at uh, a lot of people who were profiting off of organized crime. So. Um, you've got all these things going on in the background. I don't want to give the FBI a pass on this by any means, because what I found in these files was um, a lot of tips and evidence about, you know, some of the crime figures who are, you know, who controlled this area. And there's no evidence the FBI ever followed up on that or even passed on the information to uh, the police. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, at that time, I would have been kind of shocked to see them get involved. I mean, they weren't uh, sure. they weren't the friendliest to people, black people in America at that time. Um, no, and this certain- is a, maybe a transition to the characters you wanted to talk about a minute ago. But I even came. We didn't put this in the story, but I came across one memo where um, there were these memos coming out of the Chicago office that were being sent to the uh, Washington to the office of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who's of course this huge and notorious figure now in law enforcement history in this country. Um, but like one of the memos actually said, uh, leading suspect is a, a Negro, to, to put it in the, in the terms of that time. And you had just mentioned that most of the people who were questioned by police were black. Um, and that's, you know, it's striking. It's absolutely striking. I mean, it's certainly possible someone uh, the you know the killer killers involved uh, people who were black, but those weren't the people who were running the city. They were not the people who controlled this neighborhood at that time. And just a quick uh, kind of uh, darkly humorous aside, the comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory um, during this time was um, leading a lot of uh, civil disobedience in Chicago over school segregation and school overcrowding issues. And 
there's a great quote I came across in the Chicago Defender after the Ben Lewis murder where Dick Gregory, who, of course, when he was an activist, was a comedian, and, and he made this wisecrack, and he said, you know it wasn't a black guy who killed Ben Lewis. It was a black guy. Somebody would have stabbed him, you know, to be shot in the back of the head. That was obviously a white guy. And, uh, you know, totally un-PC by our standards, but yeah. that was... Uh, there was probably some real perceptive analysis of actually what was going on when, you know, beneath his, his joke um, was this, you know, recognition that who actually was in a position to carry out the kind of clean looking execution, professional looking execution of an elected official like that. And for the police to sort of be poking around, like it was some kind of, uh, uh, you know, murder of a bunch of street people. Um, that's that was just seems way off the mark. Right, and it's certainly. I mean, the way the hit was, you certainly don't think it's a jealous husband enraged, right? And then, and somehow you you get away that cleanly, and everything's done so professionally. Um, that it just sure doesn't, doesn't fit with right. anything, right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so let's get back to my question here. Give us a little context because um, I just want everyone to know you're not you're not going to come. There's not some big conclusion here about exactly who did it. All right, but I think I think the I think he did a great job just interweaving all the powers that be. I guess are the way of phrasing that that are at work at this ward at this time. Um, and how the police just didn't really have an incentive to solve it unless they could find a simple solution because there were doors they just weren't going to look at. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and that was exactly my takeaway. I mean, you know, for people who are interested, if you want to dive into the story, you know, there's a character who emerges, um, gangster by the name of Lenny Patrick, who um, I think was probably involved in some way, although I do not have... Uh, you know, there he is. Um, there he is. As, as an old guy. Um, you know, there, there's no clear evidence that he did it. There is no uh, metaphorical or literal smoking gun here, but um, he had such a hand in the neighborhood at this time. And there's, again, um, through some of these old FBI files, uh, tips came in about his uh, connections with Ben Lewis, his relationship with Ben Lewis. Um, you know, that suggests that nothing like this would have happened without either Patrick's okaying it or certainly about him knowing about it in some way. Uh, it's just, it's just inconceivable the way things were set up at that time. Okay. So who are shaky Tom and kid Riviera, if I'm pronouncing that right. And how do they fit in this very complicated, I hate to use the word saga. It seems so, um, belittling, but it really is an interesting interwoven thing here to try to figure out everything. So where do they fit in this story? Well, they were sort of the leading suspects during the initial police investigation and their names were announced and uh, released to the paper, you know, to the reporters. So their names are all over the paper. Their addresses are all over the paper. It doesn't mean they were like, um, you know, locked out of the local parish uh, or anything like that. I mean, uh, Shaky Tom was a guy who uh, reportedly was trained as an accountant, a highly educated guy, uh, but he had become uh, a leader, uh, probably a couple rungs down, but working for outfit guys um, at some level. But he had become a, a leader of Southside policy wheels, 
So you talked about the rackets. Another name for it is policy. These are basically illegal lotteries that were run in a lot of neighborhoods, especially in uh, black communities. At one point in time, they were a huge employer in um, in a lot of black neighborhoods. But you know, just like so many other things we were talking about here, uh, the white gangsters kind of moved in and took over a lot of the policy. So um, this guy, Shaky Tom, was reportedly a leader of some of the uh, policy wheels. And Ben Lewis was, he was considered a suspect in Ben Lewis's murder, not just because of his gambling operations, but because uh, Ben Lewis had reportedly been hanging around his wife. Uh, There's even a police report. They sent some detectives down to Mexico to try to find out if it was true that Ben Lewis had visited shaky tom's wife down uh when she was staying in mexico for a while kid riviera another um just classic character i mean you can't make this stuff up tracy this guy was um every news every news description of him at the time describes him as a uh, 300 pound former uh fighter and i looked up i found some old news clips he had uh he had been a boxer at one point in time this was a little bit after his boxing prime, and apparently he was still a very intimidating presence because it was always mentioned in all these uh, news reports. But he was um, supposedly Shaky Tom's uh, bodyguard or his enforcer. And uh, these reports came out that uh, not too long before Ben Lewis was killed that uh, Shaky Tom and uh, Kid Riviera had shown up at Ben Lewis's uh, house and basically threatened him. And Kid, they wanted to know if he'd been hanging around Shaky Tom's wife and Kid Rivera said, you know, if Tom told me to kill you right now, I'd kill you, as it was related to police later. Uh, there certainly were worthy of investigation, Tracy. There's no doubt about that. Um, at the time, the police relied heavily on polygraph examinations, lie detector tests, and when somebody passed, they were considered pretty much off the hook. And so both of these guys came in. They said they had nothing to do with, uh, well, first of all, I know Shaky Tom, through his attorney, um, worked it out so that an arrangement so that he refused to answer anything about illegal gambling, but he, he would answer questions about the murder. And so he uh, said he had nothing to do with it, and so did Kid Riviera, and both of them were released. And that was kind of the end of the story. Um, but at the time, they were thought to be sort of the two leading suspects until the police couldn't find anything else on them other than these uh, kind of insinuations that uh, Shaky Tom got really upset because Ben Lewis was paying attention to his wife. Yeah, it's fascinating. All right, so we're going to take it to another <laughs> pillar. And here we're going to take it to probably why this is um, the connection to our show, because we're a justice and policing and everything. You start off your piece um, about uh, talking about getting a phone call from a long retired police officer, who I believe if I read this right, was the last known person to speak to Lewis on the night of his death. Um, what I found uh, that that obviously is interesting, but I also found it was old school. He replied to a letter you sent him. So that kind of shocked me also. So why the old school form of communication? And can you give us more uh, context about this officer's involvement, or at least what he said he knows and 
what we know about how he was involved in all this. Okay, I'll start at the beginning. Um, there were actually two police officers who were closely tied to this case. We really tried to distinguish between the two of them in the telling of the story, but it was difficult because one of them uh, couldn't be named um, for reasons we'll get into later. One of them was a guy by the name of uh, James Gilbert. Gilbert was a sergeant in the West Side District where Ben Lewis's office was located at the time. And Gilbert was the guy, Gilbert's dead now. He died a number of years ago, but at the time he was thought to be the last person who spoke to Lewis alive. And um, it's just so interesting to read like the police reports about his, uh, the account he offered about his phone call with Lewis. He said uh, he had called Lewis to talk about a personal matter. It doesn't look to me like the police ever asked him to describe what the personal matter was. If they did, they did not put it in this reports. Maybe they did and they wanted to protect him. It just never showed up in these reports. So um, Gilbert was taken in for a, uh, a lie detector test and he reportedly passed it. There was a second officer uh, who was never named in the newspapers who was reportedly close to Lewis, had spent considerable amounts of time with him, was also um, in that, that same police district called the Fillmore District at the time. He was also brought in for questioning, and uh, he's still alive. And he told me that he passed two lie detector tests. There are newspaper stories describing this officer. Again, uh, he's not named. Um, and the account he gave me squares with what I read in the newspapers, although I found nothing in the actual police files that I acquired that were released to me. CPD claims they're all the files they have. There's nothing in there that mentioned an interview with uh, either of these officers, uh, or excuse me, with the second officer. So flash forward to the present day. There's another writer in New York, guy by the name of Joe Coleman, who spent um, even longer obsessing over this case than I have, Tracy. And uh, he and I crossed paths at a certain point in time while we were talking to people independently. We started hearing, oh, this guy's looking into it, this guy's. So we, we, we joined forces at a certain point in time and shared information and contacts. Joe had tracked down this other, the second unnamed police officer before I did. And just a fascinating story, uh, Joe's, Joe had heard through various sources that this guy was might be associated somehow with the murder. So Joe got in touch with him. And after a series of conversations, uh, this retired officer told Joe, um, I didn't do it, but I know who was responsible for it. But I can't tell you because you and I might get hurt if I told you. This is this is like 57 years later after the murder. He said, we could get hurt if I told you. Um, but I will write down who's responsible and make sure you get the information after I die. Okay, you can't make this stuff up, all right? This is what he told Joe. So I um, also came across his name independent of Joe. I came across his name 
in uh, from a couple of different sources, including some old files. And um, I try to reach out to him first by phone, looked him up, found some contact information, couldn't get him by phone, but I found his address. So I wrote him an old school letter. You're right. And basically just put it right in the letter. Listen, um, a couple different sources have connected you with the Ben Lewis murder. I'm trying to find out the truth of what happened. And uh, I would really like to talk to you about it. And to my uh, surprise, uh, he responded. I got a phone call. And um, it was as I described in the story. The guy was, uh, he sounded like he was a senior citizen, which he is. Um, and, uh, but he also was very firm. He sounded really together. And, you know, he dropped the F-bomb, I think, in the first or second sentence of our acquaintance. Sounds like a retired cop to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, and, and came right out and said, look, uh, what you wrote in your letter is not true. And uh, then we, you know, I've talked to him several times since then. He's offered a few more details um, about what he knew about Ben Lewis. And, uh, but has offered nothing else about the murder. And then has actually, um, in subsequent conversations, he kind of, backed away a little bit and sort of claimed he really didn't know very much. I don't know that I really believe that, honestly. Um, but that's part of the mystery of this story. And I, I agreed not to use his name because he had never been um, he'd never been arrested. He'd never been charged. His name had never been in the newspaper before. He appealed to me uh, to not include his name at this point in time. And I I didn't think there was a compelling ethical reason to include his name, so I didn't. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a firm opinion one way or the other. Um, but let's get on to one other detective, because this always has to connect to the present time. The, one of the detectives, I believe first on the scene, was a, a detective named Pat Angelo, whose right. son then goes on. Um, to be a police officer and a recent uh, president of the Fraternal Order of Police. If I got mine, was he after or before Mike Shields? I can't remember that. Was he, was Angelo, was he before Mike Shields? So it's like three ago? Um, he might have been right after, but it's, yeah, right around that time. Within right, the last so he's within, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's in the last, either two ago or four ago. Um, they've all had basically not long tenures, and I don't think the current one is long for his term as uh, FOP president either. But all right, so you spoke to, I believe you spoke to um, Dean, the son, about yeah, the case Dean and Angelo what his father Sr. told him. Yeah, yeah so what did, he, um, what did he tell you about what his dad talked to him about the case? Well, first of all, you're right. Pat Angelo was one of the first detectives on the case. He actually interviewed... Uh, Ben Lewis's widow, um, you know, one of the first interviews, once she heard about uh, Ben being killed, she rushed over to the ward office and uh, 
Pat Angelo was one of the detectives who uh, interviewed her and then was, you know, worked throughout the case. Um, Dean was great to talk to because he had had conversations with his dad about this case and probably a lot of his other, you know, heater cases that he'd worked on. And uh, Dean is, of course, you know, very uh, proud of his dad's work. As he pointed out to me, Tracy, um, before we get into the details of like what he said about the Ben Lewis case, just generally, his dad worked homicide for years and years. And as Dean noted to me, and I've corroborated other places, like that was not, that was definitely not a glorious assignment done. I don't know if it is now, but it definitely wasn't then. And so police who uh, really wanted to profit for the, for the, excuse me, from the position either worked like on one of the vice teams or they were patrol officers because those are the opportunities, frankly, to make cash on the side. So um, I'm saying all this to be fair to Dean and more importantly, to be fair to his father, Pat, that just because the investigation as a whole had major uh, blind spots in it doesn't mean that every single detective who was on it was corrupt or wasn't doing his best to try to get some answers. And that's the way Dean described it about his dad's work. He said that his dad um, expressed frustration that they were not able to get to the bottom of it. Uh, but he also recalled his dad talking about the possible involvement of law enforcement, if not from Chicago police, then from uh, like bailiffs mm. who worked for the city or who worked for the county. Um, because one of the key clues that police were really puzzled over was the existence of handcuffs. Mm -hmm. You know, now you can or you can go online, you can order handcuffs, um, you can go to you know surplus stores, that kind of thing, and, and, and get that kind of stuff. But back then, I think it was considered much more difficult to try to get a piece of, uh, you, know, you know, law enforcement equipment, like a set of handcuffs. So one of the theories was this had to be someone who, who had worked for a criminal justice agency or the military police or something like that. Um, but to get back to your question, yeah, Dean knew a lot of details about the case. He remembered it. And what was really great about talking to Dean, he was really generous with his time, but he he really had a, uh, through his own research and just talking to his father and his father's old colleagues, he had a really great understanding of just kind of how the police department worked back then. And some of the stuff we've been talking about, about all these officers who were on the take or working as bag men and, and stuff like that. So he was at really um, a great resource just to help kind of fill in the picture of this era in addition to the stuff that he recalled his dad saying about the actual case. It's fascinating that you're going to hear uh, Dean admit, to me, it's amazing that he admitted that his dad told him that it was the possibility of, of cops being involved and that there were bag men. It's really interesting. I mean, so when people complain, it's a little context around people complaining that nothing has changed in policing. It has. It just hasn't improved anywhere near as much as we want in a lot of areas. Um, but it has gotten somewhat better. Okay, the last real big question is, you mentioned Lenny Patrick before. Um, and he ends up getting, later on in his older years, gets arrested and confesses to six murders, if I got the number right. Although he's suspected in many more and never confessed to Lewis's murder as one of the six. 
Um, I guess my question is, given that context, is he the most likely person in your reporting? Is he the most likely person to have actually committed the murder? I think he probably would not have committed himself if he was responsible. Oh, yeah. I think at that point in time, he actually was living in uh, West Rogers Park or somewhere else on the north side. So he had he had personally relocated. His family had relocated like a lot of other uh, Jewish families at that time. But he was still in control of the gambling operations in the 24th Ward. So I point that out, Tracy, because he was essentially the uh, one of the outfit bosses on the west side of Chicago at that time. And it's very unlikely that he would have himself, uh, you know, let's say he ordered the hit or he carried it out or he ordered it to be carried out on behalf of someone else. I don't know that he would have been the assassin himself. Um, that seems unlikely. And talking to other people who both knew Lenny um, and who knew the environment at that time say that it's he wasn't going to get dirty and do that. The other thing about Lenny is that he, uh, uh, he like you said, he had confessed to his involvement in six, um, six murders and was suspected and many more. But when he described his involvement every time, he always tried to minimize it. You really got the feeling that, um, on the one hand, this was a way that he did business. This was a way that business was done by outfit guys at that time. But he always tried to blame it on someone else. Some of that is probably his own guilt. He just wants to push the guilt away. And other times, you know, it became clear that he never really wanted to be the guy who pulled the trigger. He had a partner, literally a partner in crime named Dave Yaris, um, uh, through the 50s and 60s. Um, and they, they had a bunch of operations even outside Londale, they were uh, reputed to own a share of a casino in Cuba. Um, and at some point in time, Dave moved down to Florida to oversee uh, some of the outfits operations down in that part of the country, that part of the world. Um, and then his son, Lenny Yaris, became one of Lenny Patrick's, uh, a member of his crew um, in the 70s and into the 80s. Um, so I'm telling you all this because you're right. Eventually, uh, the feds are cracking down on top outfit leaders in the 80s and early to mid-90s. They gather a bunch of stuff about how Lenny Patrick still has guys out on the street shaking people down, threatening them unless they make payoffs. So they go and put the squeeze on, on Lenny. He, he eventually agrees to flip and become a cooperating witness. Everybody, I, I wish that I could share with everybody like the whole transcripts of his testimony because it's highly informative and entertaining. The guy was full of wisecracks. He was constantly uh, sparring with the defense attorneys. The uh, judge would tell him to stay on, you know, just answer the questions, Mr. Patrick. <laughs> um, but uh, he, you know, he helped put away a couple of top outfit guys with his testimony. Along the way, relevant to our story here, though, is the fact that you're right. The federal prosecutors wanted to make sure that he was an authentic witness, so they tried to get him to fess up to what he'd done in the past. So he admitted to bribing Elrod, the ward boss, and other unnamed aldermen. He said other aldermen. Um, he admitted to his involvement in these six murders. He gave information about another one. 
He denied involvement in a couple other ones that he'd always been suspected in. And uh, Ben Lewis never came up. It never came up in these conversations. And the uh, prosecutors who talked to me, um, who I might add, like, you know, did really serious work to get him to flip and uh, to provide the testimony he did. I, I certainly don't want to diminish the importance of the work they did, but mm. they said Ben Lewis never came up. Lenny never brought it up. They never had um, information shared with them. Like the files I saw about Ben Lewis and Lenny Pactor's relationships, they apparently never saw when they were, you know, uh, interrogating Lenny Patrick in the early 90s. So bottom line, Tracy, is that Lenny definitely was uh, the reigning outfit power at the time Ben Lewis was murdered. He had to know something. But for all the reasons we've stated above, no one ever sat down and said, hey, what do you know about this murder? Lead us on the trail. It just never happened. Yeah, it's interesting that they didn't at least, I mean, maybe it's not in the paperwork. You, you'd think the murder of a high-profile politician like that in the area that he's controlling people, and you catch him on other murders, you're going to sit down and have a conversation with him one day just about what he knows about that political murder, right? Like, I, I, think, that that, I think in a lot of ways, Ben Lewis was, um, because he probably didn't have a totally clean personal mm -hmm. uh, life, um, and, and, you know, at the very least was buddies with a bunch of gangsters, probably reported to them, may have been paid by them at different points. I think that in some ways um, his importance as an elected, elected official has been diminished over mm -hmm. time, like um, uh, both by law enforcement, other politicians, and sort of among the few people who remember this, it's sort of like, well, he was kind of a patsy. And so, you know, it's unfortunate, but he played this game and he kind of lost. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the attitude and the fact that he, not only all those things are true, but he was uh, black, I think adds to that, you know, it's sort of yeah. easy to dismiss um, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and um, so I think that's, I think that's honestly the main, the main reason probably why it just never became a priority over the years. And, and the difference is though, I think that, and I mentioned this in the piece is that, this is really important that to a lot of people who, a lot of people forgotten all about the Ben Lewis story, just never heard of it. But to a lot of people who were around on the West side um, at that time or in intervening years who knew about it, like it was read as a warning. I mean, this was a way that mm -hmm. I think that helped disenfranchise um, black voters on the West side for decades after this murder and arguably even in, in a lot of ways up until today. Um, and that's in addition to all the stuff that you and I find interesting about the cops and the gangsters and the corrupt, you know, machine politicians, like there's a real importance to this story, I think, because it had repercussions and reverberations that have, uh, really damaged the West side communities on the West side up until now. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, if it wasn't done to send a message, it certainly had that impact one way, whether it was intended or not. Um, that certainly, and it would, you know, right, and especially considering the context of when it happened, what was going on, the civil rights movement, the FBI and uh, police surveillance of uh, black activists, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 all uh, it's all it's a fascinating story, everyone. I really uh, think 
You can find it multiple places, just Googling it, because I know it's been republished in other places, but ProPublicaIllinois.org. Uh, is that the right URL? Do I got that right? Just, yeah, just ProPublica.org. I think it's still up okay. on the homepage. You can find it there, but you're right. Just Google Ben Lewis, and I think you'll be able to find it. So Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating read. McDunkey, thank you so much for spending some of your Friday night with us. It's been a pleasure as always, brother. Yeah, thanks, Tracy. Appreciate you having me on. Appreciate your interest in the story and, you know, letting me uh, prattle on about a case that I just uh, am really into, obviously. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome, brother. Take it easy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, we are back on Monday at 530 Central with uh, talking about the officer support system, what is also commonly referred to as early warning systems developed by the University of Chicago Crime Lab. We're going to have someone from the Chicago Police Department, Bob Boyk, who's head of the Office of Reform, um, and two people from the Crime Lab to talk about that system. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>